So just saw Manchester by the Sea, and I want to talk about the grief that is depicted in it and what other people are talking about the grief depicted in it, because I have a few things to say about that. You can go to other podcasts that will talk more eloquently about film review and that sort of thing. But I thought that the angle I could provide is the depiction of grief. I fashion myself somewhat of an expert on grief, and uh, I uh, thought, and there are people commenting on it, and so I just wanted to provide my commentary. But before we do that, let's introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor. So let's just get right into it, and then later on I'll talk more generally about the movie. But let's get right into the grief. I really loved the way that the director, writer, actors, all the people portrayed grief in this movie. For example, the kid played by Lucas Hedges, he doesn't seem to be very upset. So, by the way, spoiler alert, <laughs> in order for me to talk about this movie, I'm I'm going to spoil like two fairly large reveals, one in the beginning, one in the middle. So if you haven't seen it yet, I'd recommend seeing it. If you don't plan on seeing it, then I guess feel free to listen to this. I don't know. Anyway, know that I'm about to spoil it. Okay. The kid doesn't seem to be very upset when he learns that his dad has died. And throughout the movie, the kid only has a couple of quote unquote emotional moments. And one of them was a panic attack. And this felt very real to me. As a therapist, I have worked a lot with people who have grieved and, and also teenagers and kids. And the realism, the way that it was depicted. Now, I don't know if they, that's what they're going for, but it, it felt very authentic to me. In the movies, they will often drum up these... Uh, emotional expressions from the actors that are possible, but it's not the only way that people deal with grief like this. Some people just don't have that much emotion directly after a major loss like that. That's normal. There's a wide variety of healthy grief reactions. And that's my thesis for this episode is that when it comes to actual human beings going going through actual losses, not the kind that you see on TV or in movies, but when you see actual people going through actual losses, you see a wide variety of reactions, and many of which are actually, quote-unquote, healthy. And But our culture tends to pathologize grief in general, but it particularly pathologizes grief that doesn't fit into the cultural expectation. And this movie breaks all of those cultural expectations. It Almost none of the grief depicted in this movie is the sort of typical stuff that you would see in a, in a melodrama. It also seemed very realistic that the kid would have prepared for the death of his father since everyone knew that his father was going to die of congenital heart disease uh, for years. Everyone knew that for years. So the kid might have already been grieving before his dad actually passed away. And so although he was somber when his dad passed away, he wasn't beside himself. He wasn't panicking. He also 
was mainly focused on where they are keeping the body. Again, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. He, the, the most upsetting thing to the kid was that the body of his father was going to be kept in a freezer all winter long until the ground thawed out so they could dig a grave and actually bury him. And this was very upsetting to him. He didn't want his father to be kept in a freezer. And there's this very touching scene in which he, you know, repeats that, that he didn't, he doesn't want that. And again, very accurate for people to, to sort of quote unquote fixate on certain details like that. You just never know what sort of grief reaction you're going to have until you have it. it. It's, it's very particular to people. It's very particular to the circumstances and, I thought that they portrayed that very well. If if they were doing a typical Hollywood movie, he would have the kid would have had a you know some kind of uh, drama and then some kind of breakdown and then everyone would have come together and I don't know the the movie didn't have any of those sort of typical transformational uh, moments in it. In in a way, you could almost say that the that there was no plot and there was no, there was no growth to the characters. I mean, that, that's like one of the, that's screenplay 101 is you have to, you know, the, the Star Wars, you know, Star Wars follows this, this very typical story template in, in Western literature, which is you have, you know, a simple person. I can't remember the exact way you say it, but you have a, you have a, you have a person, something happens to them, which causes them to go on a journey of sorts and they're transformed by that journey, and they return home transformed. I, I'm, and I'm not saying it exactly right, but this movie has none of that. There's no, in a way, everyone at the end of the movie is pretty much the same as they were at the beginning of the movie. And and although there are hints of transformation, it's very very subtle. So, um, which is why I think some people don't like this movie, which is fine, but. Uh, it, it doesn't have the normal Hollywood tropes. And so therefore, and the, and the reason why Hollywood has their tropes is because they know that they can entertain the masses if they incorporate tropes. That's why tropes exist. But this movie purposely uh, seemingly has avoided all tropes. <laughs> uh, anyway, <clears throat> so let's get to Casey Affleck's character. He, Lee, his name is Lee. I, I also really enjoyed how they portrayed his grief. You could tell he was in pain, but there was very little over evidence of it. He, you could see it in the way that he walked and the way that he approached people. He drank a lot, which is very common, particularly for men uh, suffering from grief. He purposely got into fight, which is sometimes common, particularly for men when they're suffering from grief. It's a way of of letting of um of expressing the anger that people feel also Casey Affleck's character again spoiler major spoiler here he completely blamed himself for the death of his three kids and he would typically get in a fight with with multiple people and would get his ass kicked <laughs> and so he was simultaneously expending energy that he was keeping pent up because you could really sense he, he had a lot of pent up emotion. But he was also 
getting pummeled by people because a part of him wanted other people to punish him. There was that extremely powerful scene where he's being interrogated, or not interrogated, but questioned by the cops directly after the fire that killed his kids. And there, you know, the cops are questioning him and he's telling him all this, you know, he's telling him exactly what happened. And then the cops are like, okay, well, I guess you're free to go. And he says, what do you mean? How am I free to go? And he's, he's like, well, we can't arrest you for making a mistake with, you know, with your fireplace. And Casey Affleck's character is like, but, you know, I mean, he doesn't say this directly, but he's saying, but I killed my kids. You know, shouldn't you lock me up or something? And they're like, no, you're free to go. And so he walks out of the out of the questioning room and you can see the gears turning in his head. This is the first moment he really kind of has time to think. And he grabs a gun from one of the cops and tries to shoot himself in the head. But the safety is on. And then you see him futz with the gun to take the safety off and then everyone tackles him. It was just the, the, the editing of this movie was just incredible. The way that they edited things together, there were certain cuts that, that were, I think purposely very abrupt that really added to the, I don't know, to the violence or the, the pain of the movie or something. I don't know. But all that is, is felt very real to me. In in terms of one presentation of grief, particularly a, a male tough guy representation of grief, he was punishing himself by not letting himself have a good life, a happy life. He purposefully designed a life for him after the death of his kids and after his divorce. He purposely de- designed a life in which he would never be happy. He has all these people that are... Uh, yelling at him to fix things in their apartments. He lives in a in a hole in the ground, practically this tiny little apartment. He doesn't even want furniture. He doesn't talk to anybody. He just drinks and gets in fights, and then and then goes to work and uh, doesn't socialize with anyone. He's just uh, he's just toiling away. At the beginning, the movie starts out with you have no idea what's happening. And all you see him is, for, I don't know, for like 10 minutes, he's just toiling away as, as this handyman. And I just felt like it was like Sisyphus. Just he wakes up every day and just pushes this rock up the hill and then the rock rolls back down and the next day he gets up and rolls this rock up the hill. It just felt that way. And I think that he did that to himself on purpose because he's, he's trying to punish himself. This is very common for people who lose someone that they felt responsible for, like a child or a a younger sibling or something. It's like they don't feel as though they deserve to be happy, so they purposely avoid happiness. And that's what Casey Affleck's character did. I, I really enjoyed how they wrote Casey Affleck's character, not only just artistically and for quote unquote entertainment purposes, because this movie isn't exactly entertaining, but I hope you know what I mean. But I also really enjoyed the way they wrote it regarding grief. He he was just so shut down. You could tell that his grief had turned him off to to the world. He just wanted to live by himself and hide. And you could see moments where people were sort of getting through to him. And you could see him almost purposefully shutting down 
his personality. You know, before the, the, the traumatic event, he was just a regular guy who was free to act spontaneously with his emotions. But after his, his family, his kids died, he, you could see him actively shutting down and he was very practiced at it. You know, he'd had, I, don't, I think it's like eight years, eight, 10 years that, uh, they, the movie spans between two different time periods. And I, I think he's had like eight plus years of practice in which he would have been able to shut down all of his emotional expression. And this is, this is very common for people in grief. Now I'll say that there are a lot of common things in grief and, other people going through the exact same situation would react differently. But I really thought that uh, I kept waiting for the movie to sort of take a, a cheesy melodramatic turn. And it only did that like a couple times. And even then it was pretty minor. And, uh, and so I was by the end of the movie, it's particularly as the, the way that it ended. Cause I, I kept thinking, how are they going to wrap this up? And it doesn't wrap up like it, it barely, uh, it barely wraps up. It just sort of ends. And I thought the, the, the feeling I got as soon as the movie ended was, yes, that's how grief is. There's no, there's no happy ending. There's no, uh, staring out into the sunset there. There's no, uh, there's no overt, like wonderful transformation. It, it just sucks when you lose someone, uh, particularly, you know, three of your own children, it just sucks. There's no silver lining to that. And although people might find silver linings, the fact that someone doesn't find a silver lining is totally fine. And so that's kind of what this movie's about. It's just like, you know, life is hard and, and people lose things and that's just the way that it is. And, and, you know, period. <laughs> That's kind of what this movie is about. Okay. I want to go talk about a article that was written by a man named or a fellow named Mark judge. It's called why Manchester by the sea gets male grief wrong. Why Manchester by the sea gets male grief wrong. I want to kind of blast this journalist, but before we do that, let's take a break. Okay. We're back. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, go to patreon.com and do so. When you become a patron of the podcast, you get access to all of our premium episodes, and you also get to sleep well at night knowing that you're supporting a podcast that you listen to. So again, go to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Become a patron of the podcast. Do it now. Do it now. Okay. So this is Mark Judge. wrote an article, Why Manchester by the Sea Gets Male Grief Wrong. It's on the acculturated website, which appears to be some sort of right-wing website. Not sure. There's a lot of pro-Trump articles and anti-liberal rhetoric, which, you know, take it or leave that. So let me just read excerpts from that article. Many critics are praising Manchester by the Sea for its realism, but Goodwill Hunting is actually the more realistic film. In Manchester by the Sea, Affleck doesn't act grief-stricken so much as somnolent. For those of you who don't know, som somnolent means sleepy. I had to actually look that up. <laughs> so this, art, this, this, this author is saying Affleck isn't acting grief-stricken. He's, he's acting just sleepy going on here. While grief can make one feel broken, 
There's also a buzzing anxiety to it, a mental thrashing about. Grief is active. It likes to prod and provoke. It searches for relief. One of the most unbelievable scenes in Manchester by the Sea occurs when, through his nephew Patrick, Lee meets an attractive single mother. The woman is obviously interested in Lee and invites him in for a beer. For an agonizing 10 minutes, Lee sits and refuses even to make small talk. Having the ear of a sympathetic woman is a perfect moment to have Lee explore, explore his pain. Like in Goodwill Hunting, Manchester by the Sea could use such opportunities to chart Lee's progress from a completely closed-off man to one confronting the terrible tragedy that drew him into this vortex. This is not a plea for movies that depict only sunshine and froth, but for a story arc and a realistic depiction of the phenomenon being explored. Okay, so let's just, you know, go in here. Now, I, I read the comments below this article expecting to see people blasting him for pathologizing a particular brand of grief or saying that grief is only one thing, and no one was. There was just tons of praise. So maybe I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I just want to uh, point this out. There, uh, there were a lot of people saying that they agreed that the movie is overrated. Sure, because it, it's it's touted as like the best movie of 2016. And I certainly enjoyed it. I gave it an 8 out of 10, which is a pretty rare rating for me. And, you know, sure, if you don't like it, you don't like it. There, if it's one thing I've learned as a person who loves to talk with other people about movies is there's just no rhyme or reason to one person liking a movie and another person not liking the movie. It just is what it is. It's like a painting or a song. I mean, no one song appeals to everyone. No one painting appeals to everyone or no one food appeals to everyone. So with movies, we tend to, for whatever reason, when other people like the movie and we don't like the movie, we tend to get angry about it. Like the whole Batman v Superman thing, you know, there, most people hate it, but there are plenty of people who thought it was fine, like me and, and, and Umberto and, there's all this like just fighting. Like, how could you like this movie? This is ridiculous. Like you wouldn't say that about a song. You just, you just know that, look, this is my jam. I, I like this sort of music and I, I'm pretty sure the vast majority of people around the globe hate this kind of music, but I like it. It's the same with, it's the same with, with movies. It's art. It's just the way that it is. So, so sure. If, if you didn't like the movie or you thought that it, the characters bugged you or something, or you didn't like the story or you thought it was too, too sleepy, then great. You don't like it. It's, it's probably not a good movie for people who are looking to be entertained. It's not very quote unquote entertaining. And if the, you know, but if, if the characters grab you, then it's, it's, it, it, then it's a wonderful movie. If the characters don't grab you, then yeah, it's a boring slog, but, but let's critique Mark judge's article here. My thesis here is that this is just another terrible example of grief shaming. And yes, I'm introducing a new phrase, grief shaming. <laughs> uh, I don't know how I feel about it, but it's just another example. I, I'm writing a book about grief and it's astounding to me how many messages of shaming of grief there are uh, in our culture, in the media, everywhere. And this is, and this is just another example. And because I left the movie saying, wow, I'm really glad that someone 
really made a full movie that the plot was basically a plot about two guys going through grief. And there wasn't a single point where I thought that was over the top and really silly. And I just thought that is a realistic depiction of grief. There's no happy ending to grief. And that's, that's great. Sometimes there's a happy ending to grief, but a lot of times there's not. And so this really depicts it. And so I, I walk out of the movie theater saying that, and then I look online and I come across this article and I'm like, Oh my God. So he says, quote unquote, realistic depiction. So for whatever reason, Mark judge, a journalist believes that he understands that what a realistic depiction of grief is. And what I have to say to Mark Judge is, what do you know about grief, pal? <laughs> I mean, you clearly don't know anything about it. he. He quotes C.S. Lewis, which is a, you know, he's a Christian writer. And I actually enjoy C.S. Lewis. And, and actually, in my book, I quote C.S. Lewis. But C.S. Lewis never would have said anything like, there's only one way to grieve. <laughs> he would never have said that. He, that's, that's what Mark Judge is saying. He's, Mark Judge is saying, there's, you know, there's, there's only one way to grieve. Or there's a there's a there's only a small set of right ways to grieve, and the Casey Affleck character in Manchester by the Sea is outside of that set, which is I just I, I challenge Mark Judge to come up with empirical evidence as to why he is saying that, uh, because he'll never come up with that. It's just not in the literature. Believe me, I've read thousands and thousands of stories and and empirical science regarding grief, and there's nothing to support what he's saying. Now, are some uh, forms uh, or expressions of grief more active than than the Casey Affleck uh, character's version of grief? Yes, but there's also less active. It just doesn't. There's no rhyme or reason to grief. It's very um, it's very varied. But let, let's go on with what he's saying here. Uh, well, first off, he titles the article "Why Manchester by the Sea Gets Male Grief Wrong." And I'm just like, you know, what, why? And I don't even know why he has to make it about males, you know, because certainly females. But anyway, he, he writes, while grief can make one feel broken, there's also a buzzing anxiety to it, a mental thrashing about. Okay. Uh, with some people, but not with others. And even if there was a buzzing anxiety inside of Casey Affleck's character and a mental thrashing about, that doesn't necessarily mean you would see that. Take it from me. Most emotional suffering, you, you don't witness, especially if you're just watching them from afar. You might feel it the closer you get to someone, but, but you know, uh, I don't understand what he's what he would have wanted to see, you know, like punching at the air or something that would have made it more valid to him. He goes on. Grief is active. It likes to prod and provoke. It searches for relief. Okay, fine. Uh, you know, for some people, but not for others. And that still doesn't, even, even if you take what Mark Judge is saying as gospel, which it's not, but even if you did take it as gospel, it's, that still doesn't mean that Casey Affleck's character is going to overtly do anything. And to tell you the truth, he did overtly do a lot of things. He drank a lot. He got into fights. He was a jerk to people. Sometimes he, he cried. He was uh, shut down. He worshiped these three framed pictures of his kids. 
He had dreams. You know, there was a lot of activity to his grief. It wasn't like it was completely ignored. So I just, you know, it's like my, my, my general thesis is that grief is shamed regardless of how it's portrayed. When it, there's just something in our culture that says that whenever there's any expression of grief, we as a culture will find something to criticize about it. It's too long. It's too short. There's not enough emotion. There's too much emotion. They're not letting go. They're not crying enough. They're crying too much. They're a victim. They're shut down. They're narcissistic. They're, they're materialistic. They're too involved in this. They're too, they're not reaching out enough. They're too, they're too isolated. They're, there's, there's always, there's just something weird about our culture. And this is just another example. And it's, and after the thousandth time you come across something, it's driving me crazy. So Mark Judge is not alone in this. This is, this is everywhere. And I'm not even just talking about grief of losing someone to, to death. I'm talking about the grief of a divorce or the grief of having someone cheat on you or the grief of having to move somewhere else or the grief of losing a job or the grief of retirement. There, everyone has something negative to say about any particular person as they go through those transitions. And it's just driving me crazy because upon investigating this, not only qualitatively, but quantitatively, I've realized that like, Anything is possible when it comes to those transitions in life. There are so many different expressions of grief and of loss. And we as a society have to embrace that. We have to say anything's possible and it's all fine. You know, we're here for you. I don't understand what this compulsion is to kick someone while they're down. It's not like Casey Affleck's grief is bothering you overtly. You know, it's like, why do you have to attack it? So I, I just don't understand this, this compulsion to criticize and Mark judge is just yet another person that's doing that. <clears throat> so I go on with his article. The woman is obviously interested in Lee and invites him in for a beer for an agonizing 10 minutes. Lee sits and refuses even to make small talk. Having the ear of a sympathetic woman is a perfect moment to have Lee explore his pain. Okay, fine. I, I just don't understand like, what Mark Judge is saying here. It's like, he's, yeah, yeah, that would have been a perfect opportunity for Lee to explore his pain. But the reality is, is that people will shut down. I mean, imagine you were responsible for killing your three small children. And people blamed you for it because you made a mistake. And some people thought you might have done it on purpose. And you're, and you yourself believe that you neglected, you know, your fireplace situation and it burned the house down and killed your kids. Imagine the, the, the toll that would take on your soul and the, the coping mechanisms that you'd have to engage in just to get through the day. And one of Casey Affleck's character's coping mechanisms is to completely shut down and, and shut off his emotions. He's trying to shut off his emotions. And the thing about when you shut off your emotions is when, it, when you become desperate enough is you can't shut off just one emotion like sadness or pain. You, can, you have to shut off all your emotions. And so part of your emotional expression is being attracted to a woman or having fun or joy. So you shut off that emotion too because it's collateral damage on shutting down the pain of grief. And so, you know, again, I just, this, this just bothers me so much. He writes, 
The woman is obviously interested in Lee and invites him in for a beer. For an agonizing 10 minutes, Lee sits and refuses even to make small talk. Having the ear of a sympathetic woman is a perfect moment to have Lee explore his pain. Okay, great. You know, if you're providing notes to the screenwriter, fine. But to extend that to say that it's an inaccurate portrayal of male grief is ridiculous. If you have notes for the for the story and you want it to just change, just because you would prefer it if it was a different way, great. But if your whole the title of your of your article is why Manchester by the Sea gets male grief wrong and you believe that men would obviously open up to this random woman that he just met. Well, he met her like briefly before, but this is basically their first, you know, conversation. If you believe like all men would open up in a situation like that, like where do you get that from? And why do you have to shame uh, particular kinds of grief just because you don't think that it's quote unquote accurate? I treat people with, with grief and I'm here to tell you that grief takes many, many forms, including the form shown, shown in this movie. Not only do I treat people with, with grief, but since I started writing this book, I've, in, uh, you know, people just start telling me about their stories about grief, you know, because they'll say, what are you doing? And I'll, oh, I'm writing a book, book about grief. And they're like, oh, let me tell you my story. And so I've heard lots of stories and grief takes many, many forms, including the form it takes in this movie. And claims about what grief should look like are massively oppressive to people suffering from grief who aren't expressing their grief in a way that is acceptable to society. There is no right way to grieve. There's barely a typical course of grief. The five steps of grief are bullshit empirically. You know, the, the Kubler-Ross uh, stages of grief are not supported by science. It completely depends on the person and the circumstances and the culture and several other factors. According to my experience, with actual people who are suffering from grief, this movie is absolutely an accurate portrayal of one particular type of grief. So, Mark Judge, if you didn't like the movie, that's 100% cool with me. But if you start making unscientific and uninformed and inaccurate claims about what grief is, then you should stop that. <laughs> it's people like you that perpetuate the myths about grief in our culture and cause people to shame themselves for not grieving in the quote unquote right way. All right. So let's talk about the movie in general, but before we do that, let's take a break. All right, we're back. So Manchester by the sea, what can we say? The general thing we can say about it. Well, first off, it's, it's one of the main contenders for the best picture Oscar and the, best director, best writer, but, uh, and I am on a mission to see all the different Oscar movies. So I don't know what to say about that. I, I would say that it deserves an Oscar for best, for best film. I, I, I would, if any of the categories, I think it really deserves it. It's, it's best score. The music was amazing and best, best writing. I, I think I haven't seen all the other movies yet, but I think that the writing in this movie is just is just so good. Um, it was written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan, who uh, wrote the movie Analyze This in 1999. <laughs> Does anyone remember Analyze This? I actually rewatched that recently and thought that it was hilarious. I, I, it's a funny movie. He wrote and directed You Can Count on Me, which is also a very, it's a similar story to Manchester by the Sea, not as depressing, but uh, about this brother and sister. I actually will show scenes from that movie in my classes as a depiction of what relationships are like and what systemic processes look like. 
So wrote and directed You Can Count On Me. It's a good movie. He also wrote The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle in 2000. (laughs) He wrote Gangs of New York, which was directed by Scorsese, of course. And he wrote and directed Manchester by the Sea. The movie was produced by a a number of people, including Matt Damon and John Krasinski from The Office. Amazon Studios acquired the U.S. distribution rights. So that's interesting. Amazon... Local Seattle company is starting to get their hands into movies. Casey Affleck is the star. Now, I should say that he has suffered from recent sexual assault accusations. I looked up as much as I could find about those accusations, and it seems to me like they're accurate. The The way that the uh, accusations are, are stated, either they're very good at lying <laughs> Or, or it's accurate. So, although, but I'm one of those people that kind of divorces the people from the movie. You know, like I love Woody Allen movies, love Woody Allen movies, but Woody Allen as a human being is, there's, you know, in on some measures, he's one of the worst people on the planet. I mean, marrying his own daughter. And I know some people say like, well, you know, this is, ex-wife's adopted or something, you know, fine. But really, you're Woody Allen. Like, you could date lots of different... Why someone who is basically your own daughter? Something very screwed up. And he has movies in which he he himself dates very young people, like Manhattan. I think it was that Manhattan. Anyway, so yeah, what, you know, or people hate Tom Cruise but but I'm just one of those people, like, I, I don't really care about who the people are. Roman Polanski, you know, I don't really care about who the people are. I care about the the art form that was created, because it's not just that person that created it. It's lots of people that created it. So I, I, now some people can't do that. They'll be like, I hate, uh, you know, I hate Casey Affleck, so I can't watch this movie without hating him. You know, fine. It's sort of like... Can at what point can we start watching, um, what's his face's show, The Huxtables? Um, man, what was that show called? It's like been erased from my brain. The Cosby Show. Can at what point can we watch The Cosby Show? I, I feel like I can't watch it just yet, but you know, ten years from now, can I watch an episode of The Cosby Show and enjoy and enjoy it? Um, Maybe I don't know. Maybe Bill Cosby's transgressions are just like way beyond the pale that it makes it so that I, I cannot enjoy that. Anyway, but yeah, we have to acknowledge that Casey Affleck is going through a current controversy, and uh, the little that I can tell from the little evidence that is before me, I think he's guilty of it. Uh, I think the allegations sound credible, and I think he has a problem. And I think if I had to hang out with the guy, I wouldn't like it very much. <laughs> so anyway, but his movies that he's been in that he's been in a lot of movies, but just the ones that I, that are notable to me, he was a little kid in chasing Amy in 1997, presumably because his older brother was the star in chasing Amy. He was in goodwill hunting with his brother, 97. He was in 200 cigarettes, 99. He was in American Pie, which I don't remember him being in American Pie, but I can't, apparently he was in American Pie. He was in Ocean's Eleven. I think that's the first movie I really re- remember him being in. 
And then we skip forward in terms of the movies that I recognize to 2007, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. It's the longest movie title probably of all time, or at least one of them. And he plays Robert Ford. The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. I've talked about this movie before. The first time I watched it, about halfway through, I thought, this is a dumb movie. I'm going to turn it off. But then suddenly it just all clicked to me, and I loved this movie, and I, re- I immediately rewatched it. I just thought it was amazing. And Casey Affleck is amazing in it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a strange movie. It's not strange like, like you know, bizarre, but it's just it, you don't really know what the point of it is. But I, don't know, I really love that movie. 2010, he plays himself in I'm Still There. He wrote, produced, and directed this. That's the one with Joaquin Phoenix. I A lot of people loved this movie. You know, it's the one where Joaquin Phoenix essentially trolls everyone into thinking that he's gone crazy, but he, he's just acting like he's going crazy, and he wants to be, he wants to, he said, I'm going to retire being an actor, and I'm going to, I'm going to become a rapper. <laughs> and <laughs> when I, I mean, maybe I don't think I saw it in 2010. I think I think I saw it like three or four years later, and it seemed incredibly fake to me. You know, because the whole thing about the movie was it was unclear if it was real or fake, but it was pretty clear to me that it was fake. One, two, I I don't know what the point of the movie was. Like, it's sort of like this weird version of Borat in a way, but it it wasn't like Borat is actually funny, whereas. The I'm Still Here movie is just it's just kind of like this weird social experiment done by these people who have privilege because they have access to because they're stars and they can do that sort of thing. And I don't know. It was it was a little funny to see some of the reactions of people because people would react to him because, you know, some people did believe what was what he was going through. I think maybe one of the most interesting things about that movie is that the narrative that Joaquin Phoenix would go crazy was easily accepted by the general public at the time. Like it, people were like, Oh yeah, another person goes crazy. So it's, it's just, that's interesting that we just assume like everyone goes crazy at some point or something. Anyway, like the whole Dave Chappelle thing. It's like, Oh yeah, he went crazy. He's, he's off his rocker. And that was like a narrative that wasn't accurate. Anyway, he was in tower heist in 2011. He was one of the voices in Paranorman in 2012. He was in Out of the Furnace in 2013. Awesome movie. Love this movie. Out of the Furnace. He was in Interstellar in 2014 and then Manchester by the Sea. Lucas Hedges plays the kid. And while I was watching the movie, I was like, I recognize this kid from somewhere, but I can't place him. Well, in 2012, he was one of the other kids in Moonrise Kingdom. I think he was the bully. (laughs) He was like the, he played Redford in Moonrise Kingdom, which is one of my favorite movies, and I actually went as uh, as Sam from Moonrise Kingdom a few years ago in for Halloween. <laughs> but uh, he was also in Grand Budapest Hotel in 2014, so apparently Wes Anderson likes him. And then in 2016, he's in Manchester by the Sea, and he plays Patrick Ch- uh, Chandler, and he was great. Uh, funny guy. I thought his... I thought his lines were a little rushed at times. I think he, there were times when I thought it was obvious that he couldn't wait to get his line out and he wasn't really waiting to, for the other, because the thing about acting is like, and I'm not an actor, so, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but if you just memorize the lines, 
it goes too fast. You, you, you know, people say something, it registers in your head and then you have to say it back to them. So, and, and as a person who does podcasts and edits the audio, I noticed that lag. There's, there's a, there's a lot of lag in the way people actually talk because it takes a while for you to register what the person says, think about something to say, mull over a few options and then say something. And I'm not saying that takes five minutes, but it, there's a, there's a lag time. And when uh, a TV shows and movies, obviously there's no lag time because you know exactly what you're going to say at the next particular moment. And so sometimes if you rush it, it, it seems rushed and it seems like you're acting when you're not actually just taking in with a person. Anyway, so I, th- I thought Lucas had just suffered from that a little bit, but, um, but it was, you know, not very noticeable. Michelle Williams was also in this movie. She was nominated for Golden Globe, I believe for supporting actress. Of course, she got her fame from Dawson's Creek. She was in Me Without You in, in twenty in two thousand one, Prozac Nation, The Station Agent, wonderful movie, highly recommend it. The Baxter, another great movie. Brokeback Mountain, of course. She was in the, I think she won an Oscar for that. Synecdoche, New York, which I hated. Uh, Wendy and Lucy. This was the first movie that I thought, huh, Michelle Williams is an interesting person she takes interesting because she you know she's arguably you know one of the most famous she's you know she's top 30 female actresses of her you know age group or something and she chose this movie in 2008 called wendy and lucy it's basically about a homeless girl named wendy who has this dog named lucy i think that's what it is or the other way around but anyway it's this really again no plot movie where she's just wandering around with her dog and trying to get food and shelter. She's, I think she's kind of like a hobo. And uh, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, I was like, wow, Michelle Williams, good for you that you took this, took this role. Blue Valentine, 2010, great movie. Again, another odd role. Shutter Island, Meek's Cutoff. This is when I was like, oh, Michelle Williams is all in on the I'm going to take weird, uh, you know, um, scripts because Meek's cut off. I, I liked this movie, but I would guess 99% of people would hate it. It's similar to Manchester by the sea in that there's no plot. It's there's everyone's kind of an asshole. And it's basically about these like two or three families that are heading West during like the 1800s when uh, white Americans were, you know, moving West in the United States to, go to San Francisco or to Kansas or something. And it's, it's just these people in their, um, their, whatever you call it, your stagecoach, just slowly and boringly <laughs> traveling. And they, you know, they're like, Oh, our wheel got caught in a rut. Now we have to wait a couple of days while we repair the wheel. And <laughs> I don't know, but I liked it anyway. My Week with Marilyn, she, I believe, plays Marilyn Monroe, and she was okay in that. Oz the Great and Powerful in 2013, uh, I didn't like that movie, and Man- uh, Manchester by the Sea, okay. Kara uh, Hayward, okay, so this person, so the Lucas Hedges, the guy who plays Patrick Chandler, he has this girlfriend at the beginning of the movie, and I thought, huh, that looks like the girl from Moonrise Kingdom. 
And it was. So there are two Moonrise Kingdom stars in this movie. Kara Hayward, the uh, she she played the main character in Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, so it's great to see her acting. She's grown up now. She's no longer a, a tween. She's an actual, you know, adult woman now. <laughs> um, Rotten Tomatoes, 96%. Metacritic, score of 96. So very high. Like I said, I love this movie. I gave it an 8 out of 10. The story was tense and moving. It was never cheesy. Although I could see if you rented this movie and watched it at home, how you would think it was ridiculous. You kind of have to be in the theater for... There's certain movies where you have to be in a dark place with no distractions, no telephones, no, you know, no laptops. And if you were watching this movie at home and there were distractions, I could see you being pulled out of the characters and just hating this movie. So just kind of be aware of that. Now, there were a couple of scenes that were cheesy. There was this one scene where Casey Affleck punches a window and cuts his hand. And I thought that was a little derivative of other scenes I've seen, but on the cheese meter, cheesy meter, it was not, you know, very high. Also, there was a scene at the very end where, Casey Affleck drops a ball and it goes, rolls down the hill and he says, I'll oh, just let it go. And I, and I don't know if that was on purpose to, to kind of sim- symbolize letting go of grief. But when he said that, I just thought, Oh, come on. Like, you know, I, I and I was so kind of in love with this movie that I thought maybe that was a mistake. Like he, he just, maybe it was even ad libbed. Like, Oh, let the ball go. And they didn't mean it to be symbolic of grief, but it was, um, that was on the precipice of cheese. Like I said earlier, it's like Lonigan purposely made the movie uncheesy. It's like he just wanted it. It's like he set out like his primary mission was like, I'm going to write a movie that doesn't have a single Hollywood trope. <laughs> um, although you could say you can make an argument that there were some Hollywood tropes, like he's a tough guy and he gets in fights and stuff, but I don't know. I kept wondering how they're going to end this. And I thought, well, maybe he'll get back together with Michelle Williams and that didn't happen. And then I thought, well, maybe he'll have a, a grandiose breakdown moment and everyone will, you know, hug him and stuff. And that didn't happen. There's only one moment where Casey Affleck's character really cries. And it was so subtle and just so realistic that I just thought, wow, you know, and it was very moving. It felt very real. The thing that the, about movie crying that always bothers me is actors in movies when they cry and I think I've said this before on the podcast is they cry into the camera people will keep their head up and their the tears are streaming down and their face is all screwed up and the and you can see it but the fact is is that when people really cry they hide their face particularly men they will they'll people are trying not to cry and so they depicted that really well in that one scene where Casey Affleck's character cries. He he starts to cry and he buries his face in his his friend's chest. And the friend and the other interesting thing was the friend wasn't particularly comfortable <laughs> taking care of Casey Affleck's character in that moment. She kind of looks at her husband and says like, "Uh, what do I do here?" And again, very accurate, I thought. <clears throat> So, like I said, the the music, I just want to talk about the music. It was very old fashioned. It was almost, it was almost kind of abrupt how old fashioned the music was, but it, 
it really set the mood perfectly. And it, I felt like it elevated the movie, you know, the, this sort of, you have this new England town on the, you know, on the water and it feels very new Englandy. And then you have this, this, this old fashioned classical kind of score and I just thought it was, and I, I was, and there were certain moments where I was like, wow, the music is really good right here. And I tried to imagine what the scene would be without the music. And I think it would be like half of what it was without the music. Cause the, the music really tells you what's happening internally for Casey Affleck's character, because so much of it is internal for him. And so I thought that was pretty great. It was also, it was also a funny movie. There were a lot of, little humorous moments, particularly the banter between Casey Affleck's character and, and uh, his nephew. I also really liked how they portrayed the, the kid's troubled alcoholic mother. It, it felt authentic to me, although I didn't like the casting decision to cast Matthew Broderick as the stepdad. <laughs> The, the way they even just revealed Matthew Broderick on the screen was almost comical. He just sort of like pops in off the side of the screen and half the people in the theater laughed when that happened, including me. I was like, oh, you know, because there's you're, you're going along in the movie and there's not a lot of stars other than other than Michelle Williams and Casey Affleck. And the way and the way they're revealed is is, you know, is OK, but there's something funny about Matthew Broderick's face. He just has a funny face. And so he pops into this scene and it's, it's supposed to be very tense and kind of, kind of odd. And Matthew Broderick pops in. You're just like, and everyone started laughing. It really, I, I don't, and it wasn't like you needed a star there one. And you didn't even need a good actor there because it was a, it was a, it was, a, it was only, he was only on screen for a few minutes. And so, I just wonder what the wisdom was around around casting Casey, or, uh, Matthew Broderick there. I had the feeling that Matthew Broderick pulled in a favor or something and really wanted to be in this movie, or Matt, or Matt Damon was having cocktails with Broderick and said, hey, you know, I do have this part. And, and I just feel like it, it just didn't... You, 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 casting directors out there, if you're listening, which I'm sure you're not, but if you are just have to be careful with stuff like that, you know, because really in my, the, the best movies don't take you out of the movie, right? It keeps you in the movie. And when you have a star, it, uh, that sort of comes out of nowhere for no reason. It, it's, um, it's abrupt. Now, if Matthew Broderick had been in the movie longer, so, you know, the, this, everyone, whatever, like Tom Cruise, you know, his face appears on that screen. Well, for the first couple of minutes, you're just thinking, oh, that's Tom Cruise, that's Tom Cruise, that's Tom Cruise. But after a while, you start adjusting, if it's directed and written well and acted well, you start adjusting to thinking, that's not Tom Cruise, that's now so-and-so, it's now Jack Reacher or something. I don't know why I brought up Jack Reacher, I hated those movies. But, so with Matthew Broderick's character, he pops on the screen and then all you can think about is like, oh my God, it's Matthew Broderick, what is he doing? Looks like he's gained a little weight, blah 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 blah, and then then he's gone. So the, so you never had a chance to adjust, and and it's all just you know, just silliness <laughs> anyway. But yeah, I, I loved the movie. I, I loved how they depicted this this alcoholic uh, biological mom, and then the stepdad who comes in and he's super Christian, and it seems like he's a, he's a little controlling. 
but that's I've seen that clinically many times when you have someone who is struggling with addiction or and I think she it seemed like she was also traumatized or she had some emotional issues that when when someone like that is flailing around untreated one of the ways that they will cope is they will find a very quote unquote stable but kind of controlling partner to um, help them cope with life essentially they're they're finding a like an assistant or a handler or a father or a mother or something. And they create this overfunction or underfunctional relationship. And they depicted that pretty well, I thought, because it felt, it felt pretty ugly as you witnessed their relationship. So I thought that was also interesting. I will say that I thought that it did have a somewhat of a, of a happy ending. And it's very subtle. You don't really know the ending of the movie is approaching. You just you just think it's hard. You, there's no way to know when the movie's going to end because there's no plot. <laughs> so I, I was just sort of in the movie, and I see Casey Affleck's character. He's just kind of milling around, waiting for his nephew to come out of an office, and he sees this ball and he picks it up and he starts bouncing it around. And it wasn't until after the movie ended that I realized that that was Casey Affleck's character beginning to emerge again. It was the first moment in the movie post the loss of his kids where he actually did something spontaneous and fun just for the sake of it. And so I think that it was an indication that he was getting better. Now, for me, there were several moments in the movie that made me cry, but the moments aren't manipulative like in other movies where they know they're trying to make you cry. It's 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 a sad movie, but it's also a funny movie. It's an interesting movie. It's a moving movie, and I recommend it. It's 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 a little long. I th- I feel like they could have cut out, as I always say about movies that are more than two hours long. I just I f- feel like they could have cut out a little bit. There's a little little extra fat in towards the end, but but yeah, it was great. After the movie a woman behind me said out loud, she said, that movie took my heart and slowly raked it over the coals. (laughs) I think that sums it up pretty well. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. (laughs) 